Acts chapter seven. Here's what's happened. Verse 13 of chapter six. Stephen has been preaching. No one can give an answer to what he says. So, verse 13 of chapter six, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will damage the customs that Moses delivered to us. He speaks against the place, the temple, the procedures, the law, and the person, Moses. And that's it for them. So here's what Stephen has done. He has spoken the truth. Have you heard the saying that truth won't cost you anything, but a lie will cost you everything? Is that right or wrong? It's wrong, right? The truth can cost you, right? If you tell the truth, it can cost you. Do these pants make me look fat? <laughs> Careful, right? I think it's been rightly said that drunk people, kids, and leggings always tell the truth. <laughs> and who gets in more fights than kids and drunk people? Probably because they're being truthful. Too truthful at that point. Yeah, truth can cost you. Stephen will expound the truth to these guys. They don't have an answer for him, so they kill him. It's gonna cost him. And if you look at church history for 2,000 years, there have been men and women who have spoke the truth and it has cost them everything. And we're gonna see the very first person that this ever happens to. Well, why should we speak the truth then? Why would we wanna do that? Are there some core reasons? Um, the, the choice between truth and a lie isn't just a choice. It's two different kinds of paths. It's two different kinds of ways of existing. When you lie, this is actually uh, psychology. If you take psychology 101, when you lie, you actually damage who you are. And you actually become unsure who you are after a while. And there's this study that they just did. It was, I, I think a year ago, I read it. It's, it's phenomenal. Where they found this. When you lie, you become stupider. There's some in here that can't afford that. So be careful. <laughs> Here's what they say happens. When you tell the truth, your brain is able to just file that away and just done until it has to access that information. When you tell a lie, here's what your brain has to do. Your brain has to spin that lie all the time, remembering who did I lie to and who did I tell the truth to? <laughs> yeah. And so it's always sitting there like, uh, okay, wait, how do I answer this person? Do I go to the truth file or do I have to go to my lie file? And so your brain, it, it's like, you don't have enough horsepower for it to be out there spinning too many things. So you become dumber and dumber and dumber. There's a lot of good reasons to tell the truth. Stephen here is gonna tell the truth. In the end, he wins, but in the short run, he loses. And it's a brutal, brutal chapter. So he is telling the truth. And these people are lying about him, verse 13. They couldn't answer him. They couldn't get any evidence against him. So they got 
false witnesses. Have you ever been falsely accused of something you did not do? How does that make you feel? It's bad, isn't it? A bunch of years ago, I had a diesel truck and uh, I went to a gas station. The guy, I had like maybe five gallons of diesel in it, two tanks in it. He filled up the first tank with gasoline. So it was like five gallons of diesel, 10 gallons of gasoline. He's like, oh no, man, I'm gonna fire from my job. I don't have, you know, a big sob story. I'm like, dude, don't worry about it. Fill up my back tank, I'll take care of it. So I ate it, I had to go home, open up the tank, drain out. I had like, for about seven or eight years, I had these tanks of half diesel, half gasoline that I'd use just a little bit for fires, which is kind of cool. It's a really good fire starter. But I didn't use much. It like forever took up these containers, right? I had to do all that work to drain it out. Plus I ate 50 bucks worth of fuel. Well, a couple months later, this lady from the church calls me and says, there's this guy who's going around saying you got him fired from his job because you told on him when he filled your truck with the wrong kind of fuel. I'm like, what? And so I told the whole story. She goes, you've got to go talk to this guy. I said, I'm not doing that. She said, then I'm going to go talk to him. I said, brilliant. I love that. Serve me in that way. Thank you. (laughs) I was bummed. I'm like, I did everything right. I went beyond the call that I should, ate a bunch of fuel, had to spend an hour and a half on my truck draining fuel out, had to everything goes with it. You got to, you know, bleed the line. It was a, it was a giant job. And then I get blamed for doing it. It's a bummer. Stephen's in this spot. He's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not preaching that. So listen to how he responds to this. Better than me. He does it brilliantly. Verse one, chapter seven. The high priest said, are these things so? Are you speaking against the temple, the law, And Moses, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, how respectful is that? Hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him there into the land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they will come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him a covenant of the circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Stephen has asked a very simple question. Are these things so? And he gives a 50 verse message. And this 50 verse message that he gives, I think is arguably the best message in the book of Acts. It's brilliant, right? He doesn't prepare it. I prepare all my messages. I study and study and study and study. This is extemporaneous. It's it's what life really is. Life is mostly, 95% of life is a pop quiz. 
You're not given like, hey, tomorrow you get, this guy at work's gonna ask you this question. Hey, on the way home today, someone's gonna pull in front of you and flip you off, right? Life is a constant pop quiz. And it's how do we respond? He responds right here, unbelievable. Has that ever happened to you? Where you get asked a question that you're like, whoa, I don't even know about that. And you begin to speak. And as you speak, you're amazed at yourself. You're like, man, I wish my wife was here right now. I wish Pastor Matt was here. I'd be up there in the pulpit next Sunday. This is brilliant. That's God's spirit. And Jesus says that, that he'll bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus has spoken to us. The more you put in, the more of a reservoir there is for God's spirit to bring out when life pops us with pop quizzes. And he begins by talking about verse number two, the God of glory, which is a huge, huge idea. The word glory here, it's Greek, but it comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word, which is kavod. And what kavod means is literally like heaviness. Eglon, the only guy in the Bible who's called a very fat man, his bed was, I think, 13 feet long. He's huge. Eglon was called kavod kavod, translated very fat man. So that's the idea that kavod is this weight. Have you ever been in the presence of someone that's really important and just felt like they have a weight to them? So there's this one time that um, because of some circumstances, uh, I ended up in uh, very close proximity to George W. Bush, like from here to Brian in the fr front row, like that close to him. And he, he comes out and he's like, hey, Matt, how are you doing? No, he didn't say that. He didn't know me. <laughs> but just, we happened to be that close. There's all these like very important people in between me and him. But it was so strange because there was like this, I could feel this, and I don't care what your political persuasion is, the, the position he held had such weight that I remember just like, whoa, I could feel it. It was palpable. So it's just like, whoa, that's somebody's kavod. It comes from God though. That we are actually, the Bible says, Psalm verse eight, God is the kavod carrier and then he shares it. We are crowned, Psalm eight, verse six, we are crowned with his kavod that he shares his glory with you and me, that we have a certain weight, we have a certain glory that comes from him. It's brilliant, it's amazing. Borrowed kavod. So he begins speaking about the glory of God, preaching on it, talking about it, sharing how God's kavod has moved through history. And then in Psalm, or in verse 55, he sees God's kavod. He goes, I look up, the heavens are open, and I see the glory of God. If you wanna experience the glory of God, start preaching about the glory of God. Start talking about the glory of God. That's how you experience it. That's exactly what Stephen does. He begins by talking about it, preaching about it, and then he sees it and experiences it. When I'm feeling lightweight, insignificant, a shadow, then it might be that I've got away from once again talking about the kavod, the glory of God, and I need to get back to that. So Stephen starts out with that, talks about the glory of God. His point, and I did this on a couple, uh, Easter Sunday, his point's gonna be this. You guys are all caught up in the temple, that this is some kind of very sacred space, and they were really caught up in the temple. In the Old Testament, when Babylon was coming, Nebuchadnezzar was coming and he was gonna destroy Jerusalem. 
In Lamentations 1.10, the people said, we don't got anything to fear. Why not? The temple's here. God would never let his temple get destroyed. Even though we're worshiping idols, sexually immoral, disgusting in a lot of ways. It doesn't matter. We're good because we got the temple. The temple for them had become a kind of uh, talisman or lucky charm. Like we're untouchable. Even though we're way off base, we're safe because we got the temple. I think we do some of that stuff today as well. The doctrine of election, which is awesome and cool. People can be like, I'm saved, man. So I can do whatever I want. Even though I'm sexually immoral, even though I'm doing all these, I'm saved though. Ooh, are you sure? Right? Well, come on. In America, we're fine, right? America's great. We're a democracy. God loves America. After all, he is an American. We're good. <laughs> be careful. Are you sure? We're not to trust in chariots or trust in temples. We're to trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's who we trust in, period. Trust always goes, not to places or people or procedures. It's God, right? So th that's what he's saying. Abraham was not at the temple. He wasn't even in the promised land. He was never even given the promised land. And God appeared to him and spoke to him and led him. And he was the only guy in the Old Testament called the friend of God, point number one. And he goes on. Next guy, Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph's son sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they carried him back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sum of Hamar, the sons of Hamar and Shechem. So now, same idea. Jacob has 12 sons, 11 of the sons, well, 10 of the sons don't like Joseph. They sell him into slavery. He's in the wrong place, Egypt, and God was with him. But now, Stephen does two brilliant things here. Number one, he says, the guys that you worship, that you think are like the heroes, the patriarchs, they were evil dudes. They sold Joseph into slavery. Your fathers, the father of the tribes, these are national heroes. This is like their George Washingtons and their Abraham Lincolns and their Thomas Jeffersons, that, that kind of crew. And he's like, they were bad dudes. But then secondly, he does another thing right here. He's building, okay, Abraham, wrong place, Joseph, wrong place, but there's something else, he says. They didn't see him on the first visit. They didn't recognize him the first time. They recognized him the second time. That's gonna become important. So Stephen is building something and he's using Joseph now to build that second point. They saw him 
first time, no recognized him, didn't know who he was, didn't know he was gonna save their land and save them as a people. But the second time they did recognize him. Now we get to Moses. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, that 400 years, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. What baby isn't beautiful in God's sight? I don't know. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, this is a three-month-old baby. It's a little baby. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his word and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land where he had become the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight as he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Moses gets the most press of anybody because he's the biggest hero of Israel. He's number one. He's the guy that led the nation out of slavery. And he's the guy that wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's the big one. And here's what Stephen does with Moses. First of all, he says, it was a really, really bad time when Moses was born. Really bad time. There was infanticide happening. So Exodus 1.22 tells us this, that when male babies were being born, they were taken out to the Nile River and they were thrown into the Nile River. That's what exposed means, Exodus 1.22. Here's what I love. You see a little bit of Judo theology here. Everybody know what Judo theology is? Yes, no? Okay, I'll repeat it for you. 
for about the 17th time. <laughs> judo is the art, a martial art, where you take the momentum of your opponent and use it against him. So if a man is running at me, then I do some whatever crazy move. I don't know judo, but I just know. I know some other cool words, but they're not actually the art. So if someone runs at you, you move aside and use their momentum to throw them to the ground and then you pound them, I guess. So that's judo. What I see in the Bible is God constantly using the momentum of evil against it. Here's one example. So now you have babies being thrown into the Nile River and that's evil, absolute evil. But Moses is thrown into that same Nile River. His name means drawn out. He's drawn out and he becomes the savior. The very instrument of destruction that was destroying babies becomes the instrument that saves the nation of Israel. It's such a beautiful example of Judah theology. And I think God does this kind of stuff all the time. I love that. Whenever something bad is happening to you, you can take cheer because the God of judo theology is here. It's my little saying. And you see it right here with Moses, the drawn out one. The thing that was supposed to be destroying the nation of Israel becomes its deliverer. It's awesome, right? But here, here it's bad. Number two, they rejected their deliverer. So he's showing the theme. You did it to Joseph, you missed him the first time. But with Moses, it's even worse. You rejected him right? Verse 25 and verse 29, Moses comes. He's like, hey, I'm here. I'm the one. I'm the promised one. I will deliver you. And he expects them to know who he was, but they don't. They misunderstand, right? That's verse 25. You can expect in ministry to be misunderstood, misunderstood, if you are living really for the kingdom, living for Jesus, you can absolutely expect people to misunderstand you. Do you know that? Here's my best example. I left engineering, um, something I'd gone to school for, went into the school of ministry out at Applegate. Good move for me, I thought. My own mom, though, thought, what are you doing? And then she had a brother, she has a brother, he's still my uncle, Michael George, who was like, what in the world is he doing? He doesn't have a dad. I need to come down there and dad Matt. So he came down from Cheney, Washington and met with me. He's like, what are you doing? You went to school for four years. You have a four-year degree. You got a really good job. You're making good money. What are you doing? And so I started saying, well, I'm going to the school. I'm at the church and uh, it's a year long school. And he's like, okay, tell me about the school. Is it accredited? I said, well, no, no, it's not accredited. Well, what curriculum do they use? It's a credited curriculum, right? No, we just use the Bible. I guess that's accredited, but you know, probably not the way you would think it is, but we just use the Bible. I was like, really? Um, the professors, they all had PhDs, right? No, but I think most of them have their GEDs, so that's a positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty good. He's like, oh, all right. When you're done, you'll get some kind of a degree, right? No, there's no degree to, to get, no, no. Are you serious? Okay, but you'll get a job at that church when you're done. Yeah, yeah, there's no promise of a job there. Well, they'll get you a job somewhere else. No, no, there's no promise of a job anywhere else. He's like, are you kidding me? And while he's saying this, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, boy, now that you're saying all this, I'm wondering what in the world, I'm feeling misunderstood. Like I'm misunderstood, what am I doing? 
And then this is what was so amazing. I had taken a trip and he didn't know anything about it with two other buddies. And we had done this big circle. We had gone up to Mount St. Helens where this guy taught us about Mount St. Helens. And then we took this trip all the way through Idaho, out into Wyoming, up into Montana. And we were looking for places to start churches. And I'd gone to Missoula, Montana. I remember in, in Missoula, Montana, I stood there and I thought, I wanna start a church here. This place is cool. Like it's a big city. There's like 100,000 people there and I kind of like it. With 100,000 people, there's gotta be a few that listen to me. So this is where I wanna go. So I had, I told those guys, I think I'm gonna try to start a church in Missoula, Montana, right? So that already happened. I'm sitting with my uncle George. I'm now just going, yeah, what am I doing? Oh my goodness. And then he goes, so when you're done, you're just gonna like uproot yourself and go out somewhere to some random city like Missoula, Montana and start a church. I went, thank you, Uncle George. I have re- you just confirmed, and you're not a believer. You just confirmed that I'm in the right spot right now. You'll be misunderstood, but it's okay. It's okay. People well, don't understand faith. First Corinthians chapter two says, the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. They are spiritually discerned. Sometimes you just gotta let people be confused. That's what, Uncle George, I'm sorry, man. Uh, what's interesting, uh, he came down like 2008, 2009, checked out the church. And after that, he goes, I think he made the right move, right? 10 years later, it took 10 years. Sometimes you'll be misunderstood. Moses is gonna be misunderstood for 40 years. It can take 40 years for this misunderstanding to clear up. It's okay, it's okay. It's spiritual, right? So he's rejected. They expected him to be understood. They don't. So their national hero, their biggest, most important dude, Moses, they didn't even understand him the first time he came out. They rejected him the first time. And listen, if you read what Stephen is saying, he's saying our national hero wasn't that great of a guy, right? He was educated as an Egyptian. He wasn't a good Jew. He was a good Egyptian. That's who he was. The historical records we have, which are always a little bit like, hmm, are they right or are they wrong? Say that when he was in, I think it's Philo, said when he was in Egypt, he was actually a general that went down to Ethiopia and routed them like he was a master general. Now, is that true or not? I don't know. But it does say, verse 25, that he did some great and mighty things. So maybe that's it. He was mighty in word and deed, right? So, but he's an Egyptian. He's a classic Egyptian dude. Number two, he's a murderer. Your national hero is a murderer. He killed somebody. Verse 29, he marries a Gentile, has two sons that he does not circumcise. The lawgiver, Moses, doesn't even keep his own law. How incredible is that? That your national hero is not quite a hero. And what Stephen is saying is, listen, it's not about a place, it's not about a procedure, it's not about a person, right? And the holy place, verse 33, God says, take off your sandals for the place where you are now standing is holy ground. It's not a temple, it's not the tabernacle. It's a dirt chunk out in the middle of the Midian desert. God said, that place right there is holy. Why was it holy? <laughs> Just shout it out. God was there. It's not the temple 
that makes God holy. It's God that makes the place holy. And that's what they were missing. That's the mistake they were making. God makes things holy. Holy places don't make God holy. And so he is making this very clear. The holy of holies is where God is. That God is, uh, John Stott said, God is a pilgrim God. He loves to be with his people, even if it means staying in a tent. Like God would prefer staying in a tent with his people than a temple apart from them. Who here likes to stay in a tent? Do you really? Man, I don't. I like a tent for one night and then I wanna actually get a good night's sleep. God's like, I'll prefer a tent if it's with my people because that's what I wanna be with. I love that. So it said this about Moses before that. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years believing he was nobody, and then 40 years amazed at what God would do with a nobody. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, and then 40 years leading the people of Israel. And I always think, God, where am I at in those? What stage am I at? Am I still thinking I'm somebody? Am I still believing I'm nobody? Or am I like, wow, God, look what you can do with someone who says, use me. So that's Moses. And now he goes for the throat, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel that appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Rejected the first time, accepted the second time. A prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers and received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with, jo with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So now he lays it out like a good preacher does, right? Joseph, you missed the first time, you got the second time. Moses, you missed the first time, 
you got the second time. Just like Jesus. You miss Jesus the first time. But the second time he'll return as a conquering king. And Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five, all of Israel shall be saved. There's gonna be such a massive work. The second time, they'll get it. And in this text, he's saying this, you guys dream about the good old days. And imagine like that, you guys were some holy nation back then. There's no good old days. There's no good old days. Your deliverer Moses, who did these 10 incredible signs, led you out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, fed you with manna, did all this stuff. You said no to Moses and you want to go back to Egypt. You rejected him after all that. And then on top of that, you switched the worship of God to a golden calf. And on top of all that, you went from the golden calf to down in verse 42 and 43, you took up the tent of Molech. You know what Molech is? It's horrific. The golden calf is cute. It's gold, it's a calf. Who's afraid of a calf? Calves are cute, right? No one's got their eye on the calf in the field. You got your eye on the bull. They didn't make a golden bull. They made a golden calf, super cute. But the worship of the golden calf degraded over time to the worship of Moloch. Moloch is a hideous God made of iron, heated up to red hot, where the babies, the firstborn baby usually of a family would be placed on its arms and sacrificed so that you would have success. That's the way sin is, do you know that? It always starts out cute and pretty. If it wasn't cute and pretty, who would do it? But then it descends down into something that you're like, how in the world did I get here? Well, it started with golden calf. But every idol, every sin is just gold-plated. You rub it a little bit and it's gone. The gold's gone. I talk with men in pornography. He'll tell me, man, it started out these beautiful pictures, but it had to get harder and harder and grosser and more disgusting. And I couldn't believe what I was looking at anymore. But it's the only thing that would do it for me. That's what pornography is. Man, having a couple of drinks with buddies was so awesome, but then it degraded down to getting drunk and wasting my money and getting in fights and waking up in the back of a pickup without my wallet and a new tattoo on my neck. Got worse and worse and worse and worse. Drugs, same thing. That's the way sin is. Sin never stays still. Starts out cute and always takes you deeper and darker than you could ever imagine. I think about Herod and sexual sin. He, he's, a, he's a pervert. Took his brother's wife, stole it from Philip. But that's not enough. His niece slash his Stepdaughter, which is weird to say in the first place. So his niece slash his stepdaughter dances for him one time on his birthday. And he is so taken with her. He's like, ooh, girl, ask anything of me and I'll give it to you. I want John the Baptist's head. Done. Sane people don't cut off people's heads because a 12-year-old girl tells them to. Right, that's sexual sin. It takes you darker and deeper than you could ever imagine. It goes from pretty golden calf to disgusting vile Moloch. That's sin. I was thinking about this one time at the, just the most bizarre time. I was out fishing on the Czech 
out the Chetco, up into the ocean. And I'd come back in and there was a big surf. It, the surf had gotten big when I was out there. So I couldn't come into the, on the beach. So the only way I could come in was actually to paddle up the Chetco River. But it just happened to be that the tide was going out and I'm in just this little Tahiti and I'm paddling as hard as I can up the Chetco, but there was such a current that I'd literally, like I'd make about 10 feet a minute and I had a long ways to go. And I'm just sweating profusely trying to paddle and get up the Chetco River. But I thought to myself, like, what do you do here? Like, what do you do? If I stop paddling, Japan, right? That's not a good option. It's just, you gotta just keep paddling. I, just, I don't have a choice here. I just gotta keep going. I gotta keep, that's it. I gotta keep going. That's Christian life. Right? You stop paddling, look out, Japan. You'll go into a place you don't wanna be in because we have a real enemy. We've been betrayed by the ease of this life into thinking that life is a playground when the Bible screams at you and me, it's a battleground. Be armored up, be ready. You have a real enemy and he wants to take you out. And sin is always a wedge, that's what it is. That if you can just get the, the littlest thing into you, it seems so small, he drives it open and then just pours in all the junk he wants. That's what sin is, it's a wedge. Look at your TV viewing habits. Watch how they go. They always take a trajectory, don't they? Oh, that's cool, oh, that's cool. Oh, no, good. How did I get here? Well, well, right up here, there's a wedge that started you and drove you down. That's why the Bible says over and over, be holy. Be ho paddle hard, I would say. Be holy, because it'll take you to a place you can't imagine. These guys could never imagine when it started with a beautiful golden calf that in a couple generations, There'd be their sons, their granddaughters, their grandsons sacrificing their great grandkids on the arms of Moloch. Be holy, be holy. So here's what Stephen is doing. You've never obeyed God. You act like there's some great history behind you when you're following God. You never did that. Within two years, you were worshiping a golden calf. You didn't do that. There's no pretty time in your history. No way. He's saying, read your Bible. And then he goes brutal. I don't know if there's a shift now, if he senses something, if there's like people kind of grumbling in the audience. But sometimes as a preacher, you can sense it when there's like mm, animosity. I think he feels the animosity. So he just says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear. You know who he's quoting right there? Moses their hero. He's quoting Moses. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen, tell us what you really think. Don't hold back. Oh, man. He's saying, nothing's changed. In 1,400 years, nothing has changed. So it can't be about a place. It can't be about a person. It can't be about this law. No, no. Moses didn't even keep the law. He didn't circumcise his own kids. You didn't keep the law. You got the golden calf, right? You missed Messiah. You killed Messiah. You killed all the prophets, Isaiah was said to be sawn in half on a log. 
Brutal. Zechariah killed on the horns of the altar. Brutal. Jesus gives actually a parable in Luke 20 of this, of a vineyard which represents Israel from Isaiah 5. And he says, the master kept sending his servants to there, to there, and they would beat him up and send him home. Finally, he sends his son and they kill the son. It's exactly what Stephen is talking about. And so what he does here is brilliant. He goes, listen, it's not about a place, not about a person, not about a procedure. It's about Jesus, the righteous one. He uses all the, it's biblical theology. It's the most brilliant biblical theology ever done. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, the temple, the law, it's all for Jesus, which is good Bible preaching. You killed the righteous one. So how do they respond? We repent. We're sorry. You're right. We have no answer for you. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth on him. That just hurts my jaw thinking about it. Arr! But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, the kavod, the weight, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. That sealed his death sentence right there. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You wanna make people mad at you? Tell them the truth in a really good way. You want people to get madder at you? When you're telling them the truth in a really good way, be at absolute peace when you're doing it. You wanna really, really, really get people mad at you, the maddest possible? Verse 56, add Jesus to it. That was it for him. They rushed at him and they stoned him. We have really, really sanitary ways to do capital punishment. Stoning was not one of them. It's as brutal as you can imagine. So I think the closest that we have to it is like four or five years ago when ISIS was putting on those beheadings that were just, you just could, couldn't even believe it. Okay, stoning would make a beheading look civil. That's how brutal this was. So why would God have stoning as the way of capital punishment in the Bible? Because I think it costs everybody to be like, do we really wanna do this? Is this really capital punishment offense right here? Right? It's not easy. It's super hard. The people that would bring the charges had to cast the first stones. Brutal. So they take off their coats. They set them by this guy named Saul, who's gonna become very important in the Bible. Saul heard this message and it made him super mad. I think in Acts 26, when he gives his testimony, it's the goad that started pricking him. Just, ow, 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 poked by this message. He will, when he preaches, 
preach messages that, that are extremely similar to this one given by Stephen, that there is a deep seed planted by Stephen that actually transforms the world. Stephen did. So let me give you three points and then I'm done. Number one, I love how Jesus uses the wrong people to, do, to write the world. Over and over, Moses was the wrong person. Murderer, married to a Gentile, which was, you know, not the best back then. Didn't raise his kids exactly right. And he's a deliverer. I love how Jesus uses the wrong people to write this world. It gives me great hope for myself. Number two, I always have to ask myself, these guys right here were Bible theologians. This is the council, the Sanhedrin, 70, 72 people, that in order to get in there, you had to have memorized the first five books of the Bible. They're way more serious about the Bible than I am. And they had so misinterpreted the Bible that they were way over here, right? Stephen and the Sanhedrin read the same Bible, but they came to very different conclusions. And they made this crazy thing about the temple that was, un, that was not true. Do I do that? Do I have these sacred things that really are not sacred? We're gonna see Peter struggles with that as well. We'll do a message on Peter. He's got the same struggle. Do I make second, I call them second tier doctrines sacred when I shouldn't? I have to be very careful about that. Very careful of not falling into the same trap that these guys did right here. And I'm stopping my ears to other people. I won't listen to you, no, uh-uh. Praise style, dress style, casual, not casual, whatever it is. Do I make things sacred that I should not? The reformer said this, you're always being reformed. You never arrive. You're always being reformed, reformed, mean re-image, 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 because I will not take the proper image of Jesus until I'm done with life on earth. So until that time, I should be constantly being reformed into his image, scripturally. Thirdly, and lastly, what happens when you lose like Stephen? From the earthly account, He's a young man, seems like he lost. What happens when the cancer is terminal? When you pray for somebody and they don't get better? What happens when a Saul just makes your life worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, which is exactly what he's going to do? What happens when your marriage, everything you've done to save it is lost? What happens when your kids just keep sinning and you can't figure out how to stop them? When the business goes bankrupt. That's really what chapter eight is. Chapter seven, excuse me. Chapter seven is, the church has been doing really good. Boom, oh no. We have to be careful as believers from falling into what I call selective scriptural syndrome. Where we grab one verse out of context quite typically, and we then make that verse our theology. God will give me the desires of my heart. All right, careful. I don't think it was Stephen's desire to be stoned to death by a mob of crazy, angry people. You gotta be very careful of these things. You have to remember, I think in all times, we have to remember Jesus 
our good shepherd who gave his life for us. That Jesus is the example. He allowed himself for God's plan, a bigger plan than ours, allowed himself to be taken and crucified for the salvation of the world. And sometimes our hardship, our difficulty is part of God's plan to save the world. And I'm convinced of this, that it is the ups and downs of life that create in you and me the character that makes us the kind of people that Jesus wants to spend eternity with. And there's no other way to do it. There's no other way. The only way we become the type of people that can rule and reign with Jesus for all of eternity is to live through this life with its good, with its bad, with its love, with its laughing, with its anger, with all that combined. It's like the recipe that creates the eternal kings and queens. And our job is to say, if Jesus suffered for me that way, I can do it too. And whether I win here or I lose here, I trust him. It's Romans to me, Romans 8.32. That if God delivered his son up on our behalf, how shall he not with him give us all good things? Somehow, Stephen knew this is good. So Father, don't hold this against them. It's okay. My life is given to you and I trust you with it. And we'll see the seed that Stephen plants in Saul becomes the apostle Paul and transforms the world. That's the trust we have. Jesus, we trust you. So Father, this day, I pray for any in here or maybe feel a mob against them or the brokenness of this world cascading in on them. And they keep questioning why, why, why. I pray that we would look to you, our good shepherd, the model that you showed for us, that you gave up your life for us that when we choose to give up our lives for you, we know that you will give to us all good things. So may we trust you more. May we, like Stephen, be those that speak the truth with angelic faces, trusting that you will take our words and use them in this world for your good and for your glory. So go with us this day, I pray. Fill and empower us to live your way. Keep us from golden calves, Lord. They're so alluring. This world is so good at painting up Molochs to look pretty. Deceiving us, sucking us into junk. Give us eyes to see, Lord. May our consciences be clean and pure and tender before you so we can feel sin, sense it before it grips us and rips us. May when we need to, may we paddle hard in this life, I ask. And may you keep us pure, Lord. May we trust more in you. And I pray these things 
in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.